Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Minute where we're starting to have second thoughts about agreeing to carry all that fuel through the wasteland on foot in Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 43, which begins with Max leaving the feral child behind in the gully, and it ends with Max beginning the long walk back to the rig. This minute, hmm, not much happens in this minute. It's sparse. Yes. It's especially sparse because the entire minute is only broken up into four individual shots, each lasting anywhere from 2 to 15 seconds. And we really haven't seen that a lot in this movie. It's been a very fast-paced sort of editing that George Miller's been using. And if I had to ballpark it, I'd say each minute's been running somewhere in the ballpark of 15 to 20 cuts per minute. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah, it's a pretty good pace as far as keeping things moving. So when we get to a minute like this, where, like I said, it's rather sparse, it's kind of, I don't want to say jarring is the right word. It's noticeably different. Yeah, it's different. I wouldn't say it's different in a bad way. I would say it's a slowing of pace from what we've been used to. Which is appropriate because this part of the story, Max is walking through the dark and walking through the wasteland. Mm. And that's what's supposed to be happening right now. I like where you're going with that because all of the, scenes of people moving around in this movie so far have been on automobiles very rapid now we're on foot so the shots are slower they're longer there's not as much going on it slows down the movie but it does it appropriately it does it in such a way that we understand this is a trudge i like that i like that comparison so we start this minute with max picking up the gas cans in the gully he's just gone through the experience of having to be really quiet to avoid bear claw mohawk he's had the feral child help him out and now he's at a point where he can resume walking and so we see him grab the bar that's holding the gas cans and kind of lift it up onto his shoulder and when i saw him do that it made me think about how heavy that must be so going back to what we said last friday about jerry cans they have that carrying capacity of 20 liters or 5.3 gallons of fuel i found a website called thecalculatorsite.com and they have a fun little calculator that you can use so petrol has a substance density of 737.22 kilograms per square meter which is rather abstract for me to try and visualize but it means that if those cans are full if they're holding the full 20 liters that each one would weigh 14.7 kilograms or more or less 32 and a half pounds which means that those four cans were they to be full would be 58.97 kilograms or 130 pounds which is like a person a small person yeah i'm trying to like compare that to something that i know and the only like volume weight thing that i know is that water weighs eight pounds per gallon Mm -hmm. which means that the five gallon tanks that you put on water coolers are 40 pounds so that's my only comparison. Yeah. So it's five gallons of water. So water's heavier than gasoline? I think so. Yeah, because about five gallons is 34 something you said? About five gallons is 32 and a half. 32 and a half. 
So, and five gallons of water is 40 pounds. So I'm just imagining caring for those. An easy way to visualize how gasoline is lighter than water is every time there's an oil line break, right. you always see the oil floating on top on of the top water. Of the water because it's less dense. Because science. Yeah. But he's not, they're not full. Right. Because he's only carrying five gallons of diesel and an unknown amount of high octane. Yeah, I went back to that table scene to try and confirm or deny whether or not he actually specified an amount of high octane gasoline, but he didn't. So there are four cans there. Four cans. If he only needed five gallons of diesel... Only one of the four cans would have diesel in it, which means if they were all full, the other three would have the high-octane fuel. Right, but it's not reasonable to think he's actually carrying 130-some-odd pounds. Exactly. Why would you take all of that high-octane fuel your down payment with you into the wasteland because it's your down payment. Are you kind of hoping well, that you'll find an abandoned vehicle? No, Is we, that ta- what he's hoping, we or? talked about it. It's not, it's, we hypothesized that it was to help get the rig going. To like mix it in together. Yes. Okay. Because you're right. There's no point in him taking gasoline that is for himself meant for the black on black. There's no point in him taking it with him mm-hmm. right now. I think that each can is half full. That makes sense. Because I think that just makes the most sense for the physics of carrying it. Mm -hmm. Because diesel is not going to be the same weight per liter as high octane fuel. Right. I I don't think they're going to be really all that different. But to maintain balance, which is key of the way that he's carrying them on this pole over his shoulders, balance is key. So if he splits half of each type of fuel between two cans, puts them on opposite sides, he's going to remain balanced. Right. Instead of having all of the diesel on one side and all of the high octane on the other side, even if it's just a little bit off, you're going to feel that. Yeah. It's really important that this thing is balanced. One advantage of having those cans only half full is that it cuts the overall carry weight from like 130 pounds down to like 65, which is like a couple of heavy sandbags. Like it's manageable. Yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely manageable. Now, the downside of this method is that you are adding the weight of two extra jerry cans that you don't necessarily need. Yeah. But, I don't know, they don't seem that heavy. Yeah, considering that he's already carrying so much fuel. Right, by comparison. Exactly. It's better to be nicely balanced Mm -hmm. than to take a couple of pounds off of your load. Yeah. I think another thing that supports the idea of these cans being half empty is how they sound every time they're dropped. (laughs) That drives me nuts every time I hear it. Because they don't sound half empty. They sound completely empty. We heard a couple of them rattling around when he fell in the ditch. We hear him drop the cans again tomorrow, and the cans are going to be dropped a third time on Friday. And every time they hit the ground, they just don't sound full. Right. I want to say it's an audio flub. Oh, I don't think so. No? No, I think it was a production flub. I think that, of course, they're not going to fill the cans all the way up and actually make their actors carry around this heavy weight. Mm -hmm. So they left them empty to take it easy on their actors. But I think those noises is actually what we're hearing. So it's not so much that the Foley artist used the wrong sound effect. It's that the Foley artist didn't cover up the audio they recorded on set. I think so. I love that. (laughs) I can't imagine any self-respecting Foley artist would 
put empty can sounds where it should be half full can sounds. I mean, yeah. that's a big difference. And a Foley artist should know that and know the difference and be able to produce both sounds. Of course, I'm making an assumption here that this movie had a Foley artist. I'm not sure exactly yes. how much audio post-production they did. I think that that was actually the sound being made on set. It yeah. was actually picked up by the microphones. And that's what most sounds are. In this movie. I will admit, with how easily Mel Gibson is able to move around that bar with the jerry cans hanging from it, you definitely get the sense that they're not actually filled with anything. That they didn't take the steps to fill it with some sort of liquid to make it heavier on him. They probably just had empty cans to make it easy on their actor. I mean, even like the swinging of the cans is different from when they're empty to when they're half full. Mm -hmm. So even putting water in there would have been better. It wouldn't have been, you know, exactly like gasoline or diesel, but it would have been so much better than empty. Yeah, absolutely. So Max has these cans on his shoulder and he's starting to walk out of the gully and we get another wider shot and we can see see is a strong word because it's a very dark shot (laughs) but we can more or less see the feral child and he's sitting up on top of the ridge and max is walking by him and as max is walking by the feral child is pointing out directions for max yeah i really appreciate this little detail because it's dark Max fell into the ditch because he can't see, so he can't see his way out either. And he can't afford to be bumbling around trying to find the way out. Mm -hmm. So it's very natural that the feral child would would point him in the right direction. Yeah, I think it's another example of a detail that the feral child would leave into this story as he's recounting it to someone else. (laughs) Yes. Not only did I save the road warrior, but I pointed out which way he should go to get away from the raiders. Yes. Just to make himself seem a little bit more important. But it makes sense in a narrative context because the feral child runs around in rabbit burrows around that area. He would know where all the ditches and gullies and the best way to get out of them are and would be. Yes. So it makes sense. And there's a very good chance that at some point the feral child has fallen into the same ditch at night (laughs) and has had to find his way out in the dark. Exactly. So he certainly appreciates Max's plight. One thing that I don't appreciate is that Max walks by the feral child and he's looking at him pretty much the whole time. So there may be some sort of expression that we don't see, but Max just kind of walks past him. And then walks away and he doesn't give him any sort of like thumbs up or wave or any sort of acknowledgement. Thank you for helping me out. We're cool or something like that. Yeah. And I'm like, I know he's carrying a big thing, but like it's such such a simple gesture. Right. Like a, a nod. wave. Like something, any sort of acknowledgement that the feral child is even there. Yeah. I would like to think that because his back is to us, that there is some sort of subtle nod or maybe like he raises his eyebrows at him just to like give him some sort of acknowledgement that we can't see. I doubt it because it's Max. Yeah. And one of his hallmarks that we have mentioned several times in this movie is that he has no expression on his face yeah he is a blank slate he doesn't communicate his emotions on his face he keeps them to himself if he didn't make some kind of gesture that we could see then he didn't make it yeah i am willing to bet and i'm gonna look this up real quick that there are very few instances where people actually say the word thank you and fewer still instances of max saying it if any at all in this movie nathan says thank you three times before max tells Tells him to save it. <laughs> and then later on in the movie, and I don't have the the words labeled. It's just 
the subtitles file. I think it's the curmudgeon who says, with you driving that rig, we got it licked. Nice to have you aboard, son. Big Rebecca comes in. I've been saving those. I want you to have them. And she gives Max some shotgun shells. And then someone else. I'm not sure it's Max because they say thank you and welcome, which tells me that it's one of the compound dwellers because they're welcoming Max to the caravan, so to speak. Oh, I would assume that it's Max saying thank you and Rebecca saying welcome, as in you're welcome. Oh, yeah, see, it's not Max who says it. Someone says thank you and welcome. Max very obviously says, it's been a pleasure doing business with you, but I'm leaving. And then he says, I'm leaving. Thanks. So it's not a thank you, but it's a thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. I'll take it. Yeah. (laughs) So by the end of this movie... Max shows some level of gratitude. Yeah. I think we've discussed before how Max doesn't necessarily have an arc. Mm-hmm. That Max stays pretty much the same throughout the movie. He's just Mad Max. Yeah. Maybe that shows a bit of an arc. Maybe. Where in the beginning, he shows no gratitude. He shows no emotion. And by the end, he says thanks. Yeah. Maybe that's a little bit of an arc there. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to the end of the movie where we do our little character examinations. The idea of, you know, how does he start out? Where does he end? Yeah. Because I feel that whole regaining faith in humanity arc could be taking place, but I don't want to say it too soon because we're not quite halfway through the movie at this point. Right. So Max walks out into the darkness and the feral child leaps down from the edge of the gully and he kind of walks forward closer to the camera so we can see him better and he looks away after max and he kind of cocks his head to the side and gives him a quizzical look Mm -hmm. not really sure what that means yeah is he wondering if he's ever going to come back if is he wondering if he's going to pull through and bring the rig with him yeah i was wondering is the feral child considering following max further right because he already followed him this far out so is the feral child weighing the pros and cons in his head and it's nowhere near as deep i'm sure because he's a feral child he probably doesn't have this narrative going on in his head but should he stay with the compound as an extra body to help out or should he go with max in hopes of helping him further yeah i like that and obviously the feral child stays behind and i think that's because the feral child has a deeper connection to the compound and the idea of him running off with max wouldn't make much sense to him it's funny you should say that because the next time he has to make that decision he makes the opposite decision Mm -hmm. i think the feral child is really good at sniffing out where the danger is and the feral child is young and foolish and wants to be where the danger is and yeah max wandering out into the wasteland is dangerous but he's past all the raiders the raiders are the true threat Mm. So the feral child decides to stay behind. And going to what you referenced, when he's given the option of going the safe route or go the dangerous route, the feral child once again chooses the dangerous route. Interesting. Yeah. He's a little spitfire, that, that feral child. Yes, he is. After Max leaves the gully, the next thing we see is a shot pretty much on the ridge where Max and the gyro captain were camped out ahead of time and i know it's kind of a question is that the same ridge but i have evidence for it in another shot but we get our lord of the rings moment (laughs) i always get a kick out of shots in movies and television where people are cresting a ridge and they walk up and over it because every time i see it i instantly think of the lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring where the whole fellowship they come up over that ridge and they're walking by those rocks and you got gandalf and the hobbits and all them it's a great shot it's it's epic in any movie that it's that it's done in and it's very easy to take howard shore's score and put it in over those scenes 
because it looks right pretty much every time they do yeah. it. I wouldn't say it's quite as dynamic as My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion. Have you seen those videos? Have I shown you those before where people will take scenes from movies that are definitely not Titanic and they will throw in My Heart Will Go On? And I think the Tumblr blog is called It Goes With Every Movie or something like that. But it yes. fits in perfectly every single time. Yes, I have seen those. Yeah. They're excellent. The instances of people cresting the ridge, it's a bit more contextual. But for the most part, yeah, it works every single time. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to have to put a video together for that. Yeah. Yeah. So as Max walks up over the ridge, he steps more or less to the viewer's right. The camera follows him around and we can see what I think is the spot where he and the gyro captain were based on the camo netting that is hanging from a tree branch. And there's a little bit of smoke rising and whatnot. It almost looks burnt out, so to speak, as if someone found the camp and then burned what they found. Mm. And the camo netting is still there, kind of smoking. Okay, I'm good with that. I really had a question as to whether or not this was the same lookout camp. Mm. I find error with the location of that tree and the smoldering Mm -hmm. it seems in this shot it's more out in the open and my memory of when we were hanging out at that lookout for two weeks more than two weeks it felt like yeah that it was tucked up against a higher area of rock yeah so that's why i questioned One thing that's definitely different from when we were there before is time of day. It's very early. Everything's very gray looking. Yes. And we're seeing it more from an angle that we didn't see it before. Yes. I figured it was probably an angle issue. If not for that camo netting that was hanging from that tree, I would think it's a completely separate place. And I feel like Max went to that spot on the ridge because he knew that he left the gyro captain chained to a tree in that spot the day before. And there's no gyro captain. Right. You know what? I like that because I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because eventually he does find the gyro captain and he makes the gyro captain carry his load Mm -hmm. of 60 some odd pounds. Yeah. So cutting backwards to why would Max take on this burden of walking all that way with all this weight? Mm. Because perhaps his plan the whole time was to go grab the gyro captain, make the gyro captain do it. Yeah, because in the context of the movie, it was the day before. Right. It's actually not that much time it's actually passed. We've spent a lot of time talking about what transpired between Max going down in the black on black to grab Nathan and Max getting up to this point. Yes, a lot has happened in a very short amount of time. Exactly. So there was plenty for us to talk about, but yeah, in the context, the gyro captain was left up on that hill in early morning, middle of the day, I think early morning. Yeah. And so he wasn't going to hang around. Right. It's been less than 24 hours since Max left this lookout. Mm -hmm. So Max is at the top of the ridge here. He's in the camp. He doesn't see the gyro captain. We get this nice shot of him kind of turning and looking around and he's got his mouth hanging open because he's probably exhausted. I cannot imagine how difficult that climb was. I'm not a hiker. I don't enjoy walking on an incline for lengthy periods of time, even if it is really pretty. So just the idea of walking up that pinnacle with 60 pounds on your back, Mm -hmm. that just makes me miserable. And I did notice how much older he looked in some of these shots. Yeah. And I really like that effect of maybe they put a little bit less makeup on him. The lighting maybe (laughs) wasn't great. Yeah. And he looks older. He looks more like William Wallace Mm -hmm. in this scene. Yeah. A slightly older Mel Gibson. (laughs) 
And I, I really appreciate the thoughtfulness of how much work he had to do to get up to that point. Yeah. One of the things that stands out to me, when Max brought Nathan over to the compound, Papagallo asked him where he found Nathan, and he said somewhere in the ballpark of two to three miles up the road. So he left the compound in the middle of the night, and in order for him to cross that two to three miles, it took him all night. Yeah, I would say at least six or seven hours. Yeah, because he was probably moving very slowly, making sure that the cans don't like clank up against each other Mm -hmm. as he's walking. He's constantly sneaking the whole time, probably having to avoid patrols. So it's not just the tiring nature of the walk, but also the stressful nature of trying not to get discovered. Yes, I was just thinking about the cans again. And Max's feet are wrapped in fabric. Mm -hmm. And I assume that's to keep his footsteps quiet. Yeah. And it seems that the compound dwellers, plenty of fabric. Everybody is very layered in their dress. Doesn't seem like that's a scarce commodity. Perhaps they also should have put in buffers between the cans. Oh, that would have been a good idea. So that they didn't clink together. Mm -hmm. Either put some sort of wedge, I suppose, around the pole to keep them far apart. Or just put a piece of cloth in between them so that they wouldn't clank so loudly. So you know boating stuff. What are those things that people hang between their boats and the docks to keep them from getting damaged against each other? They're boat fenders. Okay, yeah. Oh, those wouldn't have been a good thing. A little tiny mini one. Mm -hmm. Or even just wrapping fabric around the can. Yes. So that way, if they do knock up against each other, it's, you know, like a muffled, muffled. you know, fabric sound instead of a clang. Yes. (laughs) It would have been a really simple thing for them to do. And they obviously thought about the amount of noise he was going to make because they wrapped his feet. Yep. They wrapped his feet and they oiled his knee. And they oiled his knee. I still get a kick out of that because it's just so Tin Man-like. Yeah. Oh, you can almost picture Max getting out in the middle of the wasteland and his leg freezes up (laughs) because it's not like properly oiled and he's like doing this weird limp thing and he's like, oh, if I didn't need this to walk. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny you say that because he'd be walking just like he was walking when he first got shot. Exactly. That we made fun of. Yeah. Yeah. We're not very sympathetic to Max getting shot in the knee, are we? No. (laughs) Eh, It happens. Yeah. So do we have anything Um, else? I don't think so. The very last thing that happens in this minute is a very, very quick shot of a more desert, sandy desert type area. And then that's it. We go from Max standing on top of the pinnacle into a fade of just, yeah, a sandy, barren looking, I'm assuming, dried riverbed. Yeah. Because it's not overgrown or too rocky or anything like that. Yeah. We'll be back tomorrow to take a look at this new setting, discover who is in it and what kind of interaction they're going to have. So come back for that and we'll be here. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 43 of the Road Warrior. See you tomorrow.